continue in our study of the church. We're going to look at Revelations chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, the church of Smyrna. As you're turning there, this is um, one of those church building sermons everybody will be attracted to. Doors will probably be being busted down. The topic is faithfulness and suffering. That was supposed to generate a <laughs> chuckle. But really that is the topic. It is the message of the Lord. And as we have studied that the primacy of the church as we looked in Ephesus, was for us to have our first love for Christ. The evidence of that first love certainly comes out in the church of Smyrna. That one of the first fruits of that first love is faithfulness. And no matter where you are in what station in life, it is the fruit, the evidence of our trust in Christ and how we remain faithful in the perseverance of walking as disciples of the Lord in this world. So let's begin to read the Lord's Word from verse 8 in chapter 2 of the Revelation. And the angel of the church in Smyrna, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Oh God, now, take the one who seeks to avoid suffering. The person who often flees for self-comfort. The person who wants all the answers before the question is even asked. The one who, Lord, Is one of the weakest. And yet, oh, by your grace, oh God, in that weakness you have chose to show your strength in the proclamation of your word. So, Holy Spirit, indwelling me, now pour forth your power, your strength, the illumination of your word so that You would be glorified and point us to Christ our King. 
that we might follow Him with great faithfulness, even in the light of suffering, even in the light, O God, of trials. May this church, O Lord, be faithful to the end. We pray this in Your name, O God. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. If there's Marines in the world in the room, you will recognize this right off the bat. Simplify. Must not be any, or I would have heard hoorah, which is the response to the call. Simplify. It's the motto of the Marine Corps. They adopted it in 1883. It's a Latin term which means always faithful. Semper Fidelis. I'm wondering why we Christians don't have a two-word motto. You see, the Marines have it because they realize that there is evil in the world. They realize that often their call is to go and confront that evil, to protect the nation and the people that they love, to lay down their lives if need be, for the sake of a greater ideal of freedom. And they are willing to get on boats and to get in planes and and flying vehicles that I would never step foot in. And they're willing to parachute out of the air. And they're willing to strap a M16 to their back so that they may go and protect us with the motto, always faithful. They realize the world has evil in it and the world has war going on all around it. And that we are liable to attack at any moment. And in the light of that, they are always faithful. Navy has one as well. Semper Fortis, always strong. The Coast Guard is always prepared. All of our military branches have some form of a two-word motto because they realize we are in a dangerous place. And danger comes from dangerous places. And we must be prepared. And we must be ready. But Semper Fi did not originate with the Marine Corps. It originated with the believers in the early church. And it didn't really originate with them. It goes all the way back to Abram. And really... Truthfully, it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. That God has always and will always call His people out of love for Him, out of honor for Him, out of trust in Him to be always faithful. If we were to put a two-word motto on our church, what would it be? What would be the first two words of our allegiance to the gospel? Might be a great topic for an elder retreat. Might be a great topic for our life groups to discuss. It might be an awesome topic around the family room table. 
Because until you and I as individual believers and followers of Christ come to the deep and truthful realization that we are in and at war, we will slip into tepidness and unfaithfulness to the gospel. And it's the enemy's greatest tool that he uses in the Western church. It is the weapon of comfort. The weapon of not needing anything materially. The weapon of individualism and self-interest. These are the arsenal that the enemy is using in the Western church even as we worship today. You see, the church has been, is, and always will be in a war against our adversary, the devil, who would seek to undo us. The hymn stanza is still the same, that we have an enemy that seeks to completely obliterate us. And though he knows, and we know inside, that he can't, his greatest tool is to make us believe that he is of no threat to us. That we might fall into complacency and soon complacency moves into discouragement and discouragement into faithlessness. But Jesus says to this church in Smyrna, stay strong, stay faithful. It behooves us to want to know why? A couple of things in these verses that are worthy of pointing out this morning before we go into the real application of it. In verse 8 it says this, The angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. No doubt that these words can't be interpreted. They can't be illuminated any more than the reality of what they are. That this is Christ Himself speaking to the church. That these words don't come from a man. These words aren't made up from some prophet that was on an island somewhere. But these are true revelations. Words spoken directly out of the one whose tongue is like a two-edged sword who speaks. It's from the first and the last. It is I, Christ, who died and rose again who speak to you, the church That even in God's Word this morning, inspired by the Holy Spirit, our ears should pop wide open in realizing that the presence of Christ in this room says to you, it is me, the first and the last, who speaks to you, East Glenville Community Church. Why is that so important that we grasp that truth? Why is it so important that we grab hold of that reality that this morning it is Christ amongst us in His Word through the power of the Spirit speaking to every individual in this room now? Because unless we understand that, we can have no confidence in verse 9. I know you. 
unless you believe that Christ is here speaking to you, the words, I know you, will go in one ear and out the other. The word for I know you here is a word that means I perceive you. I understand you. I get what's going on in your heart. You see, he says to the church at Smyrna, I know your tribulation, a word that actually means pressure. I know what stresses you. I know what's going on in your life. I know every detail of where you are and what's coming against you. I know your ups and your downs. I know your fears. I know, I know where you're strong. I know where you're weak. I know where your tears are coming from. I know your past and I know all the hurts and the pains of your past. I know those things that wake you up at three in the morning and you wonder why. I know those things that you carry as wounds that sometimes turn to bitterness and alienation in your heart. I know those places. Jesus says, I know where you were abused. I know where you were alienated. I know where you were made fun of. I know where you fell. I know where you messed up. I know where you blew it. And I know your greatest victory. You see, it is the first and the last, the one who rose from the grave, the one who is dead but now lives, that says to every individual in this room right now, I know you. I know your pressure. I know your suffering. It's hard for us to grasp. Okay, here's Smyrna. People thrown in prison. Romans persecuting them. The the culture persecuting them. Even the church itself was persecuting them. It's hard for us to imagine that that might happen to us here in East Glenville, all safe and cozy in our centrally heated building. But the truth of the matter is, is each of you have had pressure in your life. Each of you have had suffering in your life. Each of you have tribulation in your life. Every one of us do. I remember speaking with a doctor once and was telling me about the severity of a certain condition that someone had. And I said, well, man, it makes me feel a lot better. He said, but you know something? He said, whether well, arm is broken one place or ten places, the arm is still broken. You see, the point of the passages here are not for you and I to compare that we don't really have suffering. We really don't know what suffering is as compared to Smyrna or as compared to the church in China today or as compared to the church in the Middle East today. We don't really know what they go through because some of them, even as we speak right now, are dying. Some of them, even as we sang this morning with great joy and and energy in our hearts and love in our hearts, Some of them were being kidnapped and sold into slavery. Some mother and father had their child ripped from their arms even while we were sleeping cozily because they were Christians. It's hard for us to relate to that. But that's not the point. The point is, will you be faithful in whatever you're going through? 
That's the point of the passage. Will East Glenville be faithful in light of where God has placed her? It says that your, I know your tribulation, I know the pressure, and I know the poverty. But look at the differing ways of valuation of the world and of God. I know your poverty. I understand where you feel like you don't have anything. I understand where you don't maybe feel gifted. I understand where you don't have enough money to even tithe this Sunday. I understand all the places you feel the weakest. But you're rich. In the eyes of God, you're rich. In the eyes of the world, you may be lacking In the eyes of the world, you may not be the most handsome. In the eyes of the world, you may not have the fattest 401k. In the eyes of the world, you may not drive the fanciest car. In the eyes of the world, you may mumble and you may stumble. You may have a speech impediment. In the eyes of the world, you may have a club foot. In the eyes of the world, you may need focal glasses. In the eyes of the world, you may be overweight. In the eyes of the world, you may be too skinny. But in the eyes of the Lord, you're rich. Why and how? Because Christ knows you. And because He knows you, He claims you as His. That you might share in everything that is His. You see, God takes that which is perishing, that which will be rust, that which will fall away, that which we pursue 60, 70 hours a week, all of that will eventually burn. It will fall away. Some of you have seen pictures of Lee and I when we were in our 20s. Thank you, honey. Lee said she still loves me. But it happens. It happens. But that which is within me, that which is created by the Spirit, is growing younger every day. And God is using those pressures in our lives, those circumstances in our lives, those things that the world would say cut us and scar us and mar us and translating them into the vision of His Son, Jesus. And though the world would declare that's impoverishment as they did our Lord Christ when He walked this earth, Christ says, you will be with me in all of my glory when you pass from this earth. And you will reign with me when I make the earth new again. And all that is mine will be yours to share in fully and equally with me. You see, the world may say that you're poor. You may in your mind say that you're poor. But God says something totally different about you and about me. God defines you as His and incredibly wealthy. 
But maybe the most hurtful thing and the most trying thing in the evaluations of the world comes from the evaluation of those who are religious. I know your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander, the gossip, the degrading, the untruths, the bringing down, the envy, the hating of those who say that they are our Jews. If you lived in Smyrna at the time this was being written by Christ, and you went to the church in Smyrna, you would be being opposed every day of your life by those who thought that they were religious. The elders of the church would be coming after you. They would be bringing in hand the police officers of East Glenville to arrest you so that they could pull you through the city mat pull you before the city magistrate to imprison you all in the name of God so that they might eventually exterminate you oh that we might be more aware of what Jesus calls us to. As the church. That there is a deeper humility. There is an acknowledgement of grace. That should indwell and characterize us as those who have been saved by grace alone through faith. How dare we persecute? How dare we slander especially one another? How dare we gossip and shame and alienate and be indifferent towards one another? How could the house of God do that to its own people? You see, the differing valuation of the world causes us in the church to evaluate one another, not based on how God sees us as His sons and His daughters and as brothers and sisters. But the world would have us evaluate from a worldly wisdom of who's successful, who's not. Who do we like? Who do we don't? Who's got good hair? Who's got bad hair? When maybe the way we should be evaluating is one another is I'm sure that person loves God more than I ever imagined they could. 
I'm sure they're broken in their heart the same way I'm broken in mine. I'm sure sometimes they feel like they've got to fake it. I'm sure they're scared to death to let everybody know what hurts them the most. But Jesus says, I know when the church does that to you. I know when the religious people do that to you. I know when you feel outcast from the very house of God. I know when that's going on too. And I'm there. It doesn't mean necessarily that we will avoid suffering. In fact, Christ was very honest and very very truthful when He said, if you're going to follow Me, guess what? You're going to suffer. If they persecuted Me, Jesus would say, then most certainly they will persecute you too. I don't know where many of our TV evangelists got the idea that Jesus promised something different that if we were to follow Him, that life will be comfortable. We will all drive Cadillacs. We will never get sick. We will never have a trial or a struggle that is too great for us to handle. As my friend would say, that smells like smoke and it's from the pit of hell. Jesus promised something much different. He promised that you should take your cross up and follow Him. The church of Laodicea, which we'll study soon, was the contrast of this church. The church of Laodicea, you'll remember, says, I'm rich. I'm happy. Life's grand. I don't need anything. We don't have any problems here. And the rebuke of Christ is, you are wretched and you are pitiful and you are poor and you are naked. You see the different evaluation from the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of men? Maybe you feel like a real nothing, but in the eyes of God, you're truly something. You see, the synagogue Satan, they claimed to worship God, but they were far from Him. And as long as we remain in complacency, as long as we remain Rich and comfortable. We too may be worshiping God, but find ourselves wretched and naked and poor. But then Jesus says this, be faithful. Why? Because your suffering It's going to be there, but it's going to only be ten days. In other words, whatever you are going through, whatever I'm going through, it's got a limited lifespan. God is aware of where you are. God knows what's going on. God is in the middle of it with you. 
And he also is sovereign over it. That he knows where the tribulation began. He knows the source of it. He also knows the outcome. He also knows that it's limited and it's short-lived. And he will walk every step of the way through it with you. So that you and I can remain faithful. So, then, when Jesus says in Luke 18, when the Son of Man returns, will He find faith? We want to know then, don't we? What does it look like? What does it mean for us to be faithful as Jesus sees it? Well, we know from Ephesians, it's first love. Right? We just go back a couple weeks from Ephesians that we studied, the prayer of Paul. And we go back to the Ephesian church here just a few verses ahead of this one. We know that the first priority that Jesus says is a first love, a zeal and a passion for Him. That our lives are consumed for Him. Our lives are about Him. That everything we do we realize is a step towards glorifying Him. In our careers, our careers are not our careers. They are His career for us. That we might glorify Him in what we do. That He promotes us, He demotes us, He shifts us, He moves us around where need be for His glory's sake. And that if we find our security in our position... We've learned, haven't we, over the last couple of decades that our position is only as secure as a group of people who decide how secure that it is? And how fickled can we be when we get in a group? Things haven't changed much since high school. Groups of people still define other people. Who's in, who's out. We just do it in a more grown-up way now. But if we understand and we realize that we are sovereignly placed where we are placed for the purposes not of being part of the group, but to edify Christ in all that we do and to glorify Him in what we are doing and it's His career for us, then everything changes. Then there need be no human definition of job security because I have celestial security. So I can be free then, even in the workplace, even in the school place, to be zealous for Christ. Yes, it may cause suffering. Hopefully so. But in that zealot living for Christ, in the workplace, in the school place, in the home, in the laundromat, in the bus, in the cab, in the doctor's office, at the funeral home. If I'm there for the glory of Christ, then I know He's with me. And I know it is limited whatever I'm going through. And the outcome will be, as Christ says here, the crown of life.
Faithfulness to Christ is even unto death. Holding on, remaining in, and expressing first love. The other characterization of all these churches is this, that Christ calls them to patient endurance. First love, patient endurance. Hold on. He's coming. And when He comes, He has His reward in His hand. Patient endurance is this, that we keep pressing on until the desired objective is met. As the Marines would put it, until the battle is won. Why must we be faithful? Because faithfulness is an expression of trust and love. It is why God calls us. It is why we get into difficult circumstances. It is why Abram was called to bring Isaac to the top of the mountain. So that he might express before God his love and his trust in God. Those hard places where you and I are right now, those difficult times that we may be walking through, It's for the purpose of expressing our love and our trust in God. The outcome of this kind of patience, what are the benefits of it? It brings us into holiness is one of them. We learn through our suffering, what it means to be holy. Separate. Set apart from the rest of the world. We know we're at angst in a world that's going in a completely different direction than we're called to go. We're, we're swimming upstream. We're, we're fighting against the tide. Our suffering is evidence that we're not home. And because of that, a neon light ought to go off in our head. I must belong somewhere else. And as that flashes in our head, then we realize, oh, I'm called to be set apart. The whole point of me following Christ is for me to follow in His holiness. The whole reason I'm to live differently is so I might be where He is. It also causes us to be dependent. Such an anti-American term. But wholly biblical. It causes us to be dependent upon God. When are you closest to God? When you got the six lucky numbers? Or when the bankruptcy statement came in the mail? When are you closest to God? In the hospital room? Or in the bedroom? When are you closest to God? When you're under threat? 
or when everything's pretty copacetic. If we're honest and truthful, most of us will have to say, I cry out a lot more when I'm scared than when I'm comfortable. I don't know. I know for some of you I have strange theological beliefs. But one of those is this, that I believe God shakes our world every once in a while to wake us up, to say, you need me. You're not on your own. And I will not let you go. I will hold on to you with my great omnipotent hand and I will rattle you every once in a while so that you will not go too far into the world. I will jerk you back by the neck of, by your neck and bring you home to where you belong. And it hurts and it's scary and sometimes it's embarrassing. I have more than one story where I sought my sons out where places where they should not have been and brought them home. They did not like it. And they were extremely embarrassed. But there's two things they learned from it. One was to obey me. Or I will come after them. Two was this. That they are mine. And I love them. And if we do that as parents, how much more so will our Father in Heaven Come and get us and snatch us and rock our world that we might remember we're His and we need Him. So much more, but I'll finish here. How can we endure the suffering? Well, Jesus says it right here. My eyes are on you. I know you. Now that you understand that I know you, see the larger picture. You're at war. You live in a place that is against you because you're mine. If the place is not against you, then you really need to examine your heart where you belong. If the world is a really comfortable, easygoing, free-flowing place for you, and you like it, and you're really part of it, then you need to get before the Lord and say, God, where is my heart? Because we were promised something completely different. That the world would be against us. That we cannot love the world. We can't even love the things of the world and say that we love God. That there's an allegiance that we are to have. There's a commitment that we are to have. There's a place where we have said, Lord, I believe in your glory and the world to come and your kingdom come more than this place could ever offer me. And God, I will live what days I have here on this earth for that time. I will live for the bigger picture. That's what faithfulness looks like. That we have a zeal and a passion and we patiently endure for the desired objective of the war being won by our Christ. That we must be faithful as an expression of trust and love. That it brings us holiness and dependency that we might look like Christ. So that we might endure even unto the cross. You remember Philippians 2. For the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross. 
What Christ calls the church in Smyrna is no different than what He calls the East Glenville Community Church too. He knows you. He knows 335 Saratoga Highway, Route 50. He knows you. He knows every one of you individually and He knows you corporately. He knows the things that pressure you. The things you're worried about. The time of transition. He knows it. He's the author over it. And He's telling us, stay faithful. Don't lose your first love. Love one another. And you will receive the crown of life. And not be threatened by the second death. King Henry lived in the 12th century. He wanted to get rid of royal life. He didn't like the idea of living in court. So he went to the local monastery and told the the friar there that he wanted to become a monk and advocate the throne. And the monk said, King Henry, do you realize what you're asking? He said, yes, I know exactly what I'm asking. He said, do you know what it means for you to become a monk? He said, yes, friar, it means that I will have to be obedient to everything you tell me to do in the name of Christ. He says, very good. Then I tell you this. Go and be the king and reign with faith and Christ-likeness on your throne. See, the point of that is, it's right where you are, King Henry, is right where God has you. Right where you are, East Glenville Community Church, is right where God has you. Right where you are individually, Christians, is right where God has you. And He has you there for His glory. He has you there that you might know Him better. And He has you there so that you may remain faithful and receive the crown of life. Simplify. Okay, let's pray.